The following is the Women's Liberation Music Hour, presented by Phoenix on WLRN. Welcome back. This is Phoenix with another hour of Women's Liberation Music, hosted by WLRN, Women's Liberation Radio News. Depending on where you are, this is still winter or still summer, which I love to think about that. Where I am in the Northern Hemisphere, while still winter, I've seen the first crocus come up, and there's been a warming in the earth, a quickening, an obvious but subtle shift towards spring. Though still likely we'll get another snow or two, which I hope is true. Also around me, many folks have been sick, missing work, staying home, nursing themselves. And while I've kept the flu at bay with my potions and herbs and tinctures, I've just this week been feeling a bit worn and congested. So I'm sitting here with my ginger lemon tea, and I think this, this hour, uh, this week, will include what soothes me, and hopefully will soothe you wherever and however you are experiencing this time on the wheel. After all, what's not to love about lovely piano music and a good story time with sisters? We'll be hearing Mary Watkins' 1985 album called Spirit Song, distributed by Redwood Records. And between each track, I'll be reading to you from Wanderground by Sally Miller Gearhart. So grab a cup of tea, find a comfortable place to rest, maybe near a window, and enjoy being tended by Sister Mary, Sister Sally, the Hill Women, their music, and their stories. Blessed be. Jacqua stood above the eastern ensconchment, gazing across the high meadow. Far below, anger was being spoken. She knew that anger came from two older sisters who had overvisited with each other, but she could grasp no words, only intentions. Suddenly, from a completely different direction, she heard in her head the clang of armor, not the jingle of horse bridle and bit, but armor. How did she know it was armor? Who in the world wore armor anymore? It sounded as if the wearer walked at a good pace. With each step the armor sighed and creaked, rattling a bit. In the background were the winter forest noises. She listened harder. Was it two, twenty miles away? No mind invitation. She attempted to move to visual. No luck. Too far for taste and smell, still so comparatively underdeveloped, anyway, in her and among all her sisters. All she could do was listen. The armor seemed to be moving faster now, the squeaks coming more frequently. Then suddenly, nothing. Silence. She checked her listen spread and found it still operating. The forest noises continued. The person had stopped. Not sat down or fallen, but stopped short. Could the person have heard her hearing her? No chance. Was her own breathing too loud? Was the armor wearer breathing? If so, why couldn't she hear her? Still, she waited. Minutes went by. Silence. Then it seemed an hour. Jacqua grew impatient. She was only beginning to train herself. Perhaps she was making some mistake. You're doing fine, the thought was enfolding her. Diana, she asked. Yes, I've been worried reading you, and you've been open. What you're hearing is really happening. Can you hear it too? I did. I don't now. I'd call up an extended ear and pay attention elsewhere. A person can stand still only so long, particularly in regalia like that. Diana passed off and away. Jacqua was relieved. Gingerly, she summoned her extended ear, not like the more deliberate fan-like spread, but nevertheless a field sensitive to unusual noises. She opened it toward the armor's sounds, still the silence. Now she was free to revisit her own thoughts. Could it be that it wasn't a woman at all, but a man? One from the city, standing stock still there with their wanderground? She tried to recall the lessons from the remember rooms, the stories, the mind pictures, the pain of some not-so-ancient days when the men owned all things, even the forest and hills. 
It's too simple, she recited dutifully to herself, to condemn them all or to praise us all. But for the sake of earth and all she holds, that simplicity must be our creed. She dropped back into her first tellings when she was only a girl child and sat at gatherings with her mothers. In the singing and the playing of the tales of men, there ran the thread. Once we had hope for them, but even that hope they sniffed out. Rage, sadness, all mixed with tenderness and love. Love men? The idea did not fit. It was uncomfortable and backwards in her mind. She tried it on from every angle, but it would not adjust. Some of its bulk stuck out over the sides, while still other parts of it were too short to approach the edges. Yet somehow, once it had been so, maybe it was a different kind of love, she mused, or maybe they were gentles. Gentles. Men who knew that the outlaw women were the only hope for the earth's survival. Men who, knowing that maleness touched only, touched women only with the accumulated hatred of centuries, touched no women at all. Ever. Once, she remembered, some gentles had come to the wanderground, stricken and dying. Unwilling to return to the city where they might have been revived, they came to the hill women. They came for help in their dying. They cried for the ministrations of the women. Minister to yourselves, they were told. Yet always the women stood by, friends from a distance, the midwives of death, who would ease their passing. Why can't we help them? Jacqua had asked. They must help themselves, her mothers answered. But they're dying. Yes, they are dying. That is the most important thing. That is exactly what they must help themselves to do. When they touch their own bodies, they know that. Only when they disconnect do they cry for our help and curse our hardness. Jacqua had seen them die there, four of them, one by one over the days while she and the other women talked with them and sang with them, but never touched them either in mind or hand. They had been unable to sustain their manness, and though they had tried, unable to grasp their own womanness. It was too late for them now to reach down and lift themselves up. And these were the gentles of the men. What were the others like? They are driven, Wanadi would say, driven in their own madness to destroy themselves and us and any living thing. Their madness, is it like Clea's? No. Hers was the madness of too full a vessel. Theirs is the madness of power. Jacques pondered all of that. The meadow below her was green with its own form of winter. There were some signs of life. There were some signs of life. Briefly, she checked her extended ear. Still no sound. It must have been minutes now. How can a person stand still so long?
turned back toward the ensconcement where the anger and the pain had come from earlier. The rhythms were quieter there. Two older sisters had spent too many days together without speaking their hearts to the rest. She knew the pattern as young as she was, in fact, probably because she was so young. It was one of the first lessons for them all. Lightly in her memory, she touched her long-ago warm, soft days with Ursula, Ursula who had been her learned together. She had not forgotten the feeling of needing for life itself, Ursula's simple presence. They did not speak their warmness beyond each other to their sisters. They had become hidden with it. It began to eat away at their freestanding selves. Hence, the saying, There are no words more obscene than, I can't live without you. Count them the deepest affront to the person. Jacqua had not forgotten. In the end, she had understood the importance of never feeling that way again. The present matter was all the more difficult, though, because the two women were city-born, had found each other there, had fled together, been separated, and for more than a year now had been reunited. Among many of the sisters, there was the feeling that they held too hard to each other and to the old ways of trying to love. Jacques would become would be anxious to know how the talking had come out. The clank disturbed her. The person was moving now. Jacques turned her listening to the resumption of sound. There was someone else there now, too. Again, she tried other senses and mind stretches, to no avail. She turned as Diana came up behind her. Look with me, said Diana. They locked minds, Diana's eye seeing, pushing outward and away, expanding with her power. As always, Jacqua was astounded and exhilarated. I'll never be able to do it alone, she squeezed in the thought before Diana could stop her. Diana chastised her sharply, calling her up short. Jacqua took her desserts and began to focus with Diana to the scene so far away. There was the source of the squeak, a metal headpiece whose raised visor jiggled with the slightest motion. Beneath the armor and the headpiece, there was a woman. Fear sprang to her eyes as she sighted a figure familiar to Jacqua, Seja, from the western ensconcement. Seja was looking squarely at the stranger. The sudden noise of the helmet had been caused by the woman drawing her arm and a smooth stick across her chest. Seja stood only a yard from her. "'You are not open,' Seja said. The woman's eyes blazed. "'You don't need that armor or those weapons,' Seja said. The stranger spoke no word, and her eyes were hard. It was clear to Jacqua that the woman had been walking fast, as if fleeing, when she encountered Seja. The two were very different, Seja with short, curly hair, cotton shirt, soft trousers, and sandals, her frank face and large hands open, and out to the newcomer. The stranger, larger in stature, ludicrously garbed in the costume of a range of eras, as if she had robbed the wardrobe of some theatrical company. She was guarded and burdened by the weighty chain mail that clung to her torso and by the old-fashioned helm. Thin, skillfully worked metal formed her shoes. They were meant for feet much larger than her own. Her legs were bare up to mid-thigh except for leather greaves. She wore a a short, kilt-like skirt made up of loose metal-covered leather straps, Over its waistband was a belt, and wedged into the belt at the side was a large kitchen carving knife. In her hand was the polished stick which she now held as if to strike Seja. Slowly Seja moved. She sank before the other woman, knelt before her, and bowed her head. The stranger stared. If you you do not understand my words or my mind, then understand my body. I do not wish to harm you. You may kill me if you like. I trust that you will not. Still, the strange woman stared. Quietly, Sager raised her head, looking up into the other's face. Then her hands and head turned to the leather on the woman's legs. She reached out to untie one of the thongs that held the shin protection in place. The woman let out a cry, stepped back, and raised the stick above her head. Sager stopped. Then she pointed to the stranger's knife. The woman's eyes narrowed and her head 
turned a bit to the left. She seemed to understand something. Still holding the club above Sage's head, she drew the knife from her belt. Jacqua, Jacqua gasped. Diana held her and with short stretch urged her to silence. Now Sage was lying on the ground on her back. She forced a piece of an old log beneath her head. Jacqua was incredulous. She must be crazy, she whispered. Seja, in the face of danger and even death, was lying down as if to sleep. In silence, Seja looked at the woman with the weapons. Then, with deliberate calm, she closed her eyes and pushed her head back over the wood so that her neck was fully exposed. How long they stayed there, the armored woman and the vulnerable hill woman, Jacqua could not tell. She dared not breathe, lest the stranger leap forward and slash Sage's waiting throat. She held fast to Diana.
Then it happened. There was a change in the eyes of the larger woman. She lowered her hands, the knife to one side, the club to the other. Seja opened her eyes. At that, the standing woman looked to each of the weapons and with intentional slowness dropped each one to the ground. Seja rose to a kneeling position. The woman did not move. It seemed to Jacqua that they looked at each other for an eternity. Then, very deliberately, the stranger thrust forward her leg toward Seja. With like slowness, Seja untied the thong. The unburdening began. Piece by heavy piece, Seja took the armor from the body of the stranger. The greaves, the thick belt, the monstrous helmet, so the long hair flew in the wind. Then, with some difficulty, the chest mail. The woman moved slowly, only to straighten her arms so that Seja could remove that vest. Seeing she wore nothing beneath the chest piece, Seja immediately removed her own shirt, bearing her breasts in equal fashion. They stood looking at each other for a long time, for a long moment. Then the face of the strange woman broke into an amazing smile. It leapt from her face to Seja's and back again. They stood grinning at each other. They both began picking up the armor and weapons from the ground. Seja extended her hand. The woman took it. Together they plowed through the underbrush toward the ensconcement. Jacqua was breathless. Her relief slid into exhaustion. She sank to her knees and then curled upon the brown grass. I may sleep a bit, she said to Diana. May your dreams ease your wakefulness, said Diana. She kissed her cheek, passed her hands over the young body, and rose to descend the path.
Red Waters Alaka was matching frost breaths with her hound companion when something brushed the edge of spoken. Automatically, she spanned other frontiers before responding to the outskirts of her southern stretch field. All was well. She thrust a slim, taut enfoldment upward and out along the forest top, knowing even before the contact itself who the caller was. Evona in the city. She was risking a stretch. That could mean trouble. Evona? Alaka, yes, it's me. I had to touch. Are you in Fallaway? No, but would have been if I hadn't extended. Wait until you do a rotation. You'll understand better. It's gotten worse. Alaka nodded absently, stroking the dog's cheek. Evona's touch continued, sending now. Is it a bad time for you to stretch? No, but I'm just ending my watch, so if I drop out now and again, you'll know I'm spanning. You feel diffused. Do you need earth? Yes, I do. Is that Sophia with you? No, Cassandra. She is not ranging clear for me. She singed her nose today. She's probably healing and not open. Grant her root touch for me. A pause. Then, breathe with me, Alaka. Of course. Wait a moment. Alaka spread fan fashion over half her horizons. Folded. Spread again. No disturbance. As she removed her warm boots and wool socks, she rigged a half-power open condition, full circle, and slid a monitor into place. Briskly, then, she began scraping aside the crisp leaves and broken sticks. Help me, she short-stretched to Cassandra. The dog fell into rhythm with beside her, nudging and scratching the leaves away. When they had uncovered a patch of dirt about the size of a moderate fire ring, Alaka placed her bare feet firmly on the cold earth, legs apart in an accustomed wide stance. She caught Cassandra's eye. Oh, okay, come on. She smiled, motioning the dog onto the cleared space beside her. Cassandra flopped to a full-length prone position on the ground, her head draped over Alaka's toes. Once more, Alaka overrode the monitor in an assurance sweep, then reset it. She leaned down, touched the dark dirt with the palms of her hands, then straightened. To Avona, she sent, Ready? I'm ready. Breathe with me, Avona. Alaka closed her eyes. She dropped her consciousness to her stomach and locked into Avona at diaphragm level. They began, first in counterpoint, then in harmony, finally in unison. In the miles between the city and the forest's edge, the breathing, the moving, the earth surging among the three of them, structured in voiceless liturgy. When she again felt the bite of the wind, Alaka heard Ursula, her watch relief, breaking through the brush by the path below. She turned back toward Avona's ready, now less frantic, contact. Are you there, Avona? Yes, thank you. Fully given and well taken. Soon, Alaka. Or deep, Avona, chanted Alaka. Soon and deep. Red waters. Deep. 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 They spoke together. Deep. Soon. Alaka withdrew slowly. She was spreading a final span and putting her boots back on when Ursula appeared. All quiet, Ursula sent. Here, yes, Alaka sent back. Avona needed earth. Ursula nodded. Alaka gave over her monitor to the other woman and turned to go. She sent to Cassandra. Coming? The hound looked with a question to Ursula. Ursula, taking up her watch position, nodded and waved. Cassandra looked to Alaka, who spread her arms in a shrug. Cassandra rubbed with her nose the soft knee spot of Alaka's trousers and then bounded back to share Ursula's watch. Alaka made her way down the mountainside.
Alaka's Journey Alaka had made good time over the wanderground from the outpost. Without rest, it was nearly a full day's travel. I'll have to learn to ride wind yet, she thought, panting up a rise toward the noisy stream. As she had suspected they would, the mountains had drawn her eastward, eastward over the Cochleus, so that now to reach Seja she was turning west again, meeting for the first time the southwestward flowing waters. She rested a moment on the side of the wooded hill, ranging out once more to the full circular expanse of her mind channels. All was well. I can relax here, she told herself. Why am I so cautious? Tired. Tired and anxious to reach Seja. That's when my safety is best monitored, she explained. Now as she was approaching the water, she would have to choose to swim or to climb. She searched above her for the sun of the day's ending. She knew, even as she did, so that it would be making its customary dramatic exit beyond the far mountains. Swim, she decided. With renewed energy, she began a lateral movement over the hillside toward the stream. A rock-bounded pool marked the river's sudden disappearance here under the ground. A denser growth harbored the quiet pool. Alaka knelt in the gravel by the river's edge and removed her boots. She sheltered them under a low ironwood tree and noted its location for her return. Then, with a deliberate mustering of courage, she turned to the pool. Earth, sister, she said aloud to the water, I want to join you. The words seemed to come from all around her. Join. A simple response. Alaka knew better than to stand and con- in converse with so fundamental a substance. 
Such elements were to be moved with or felt into, but never accosted or confronted. She bent groundward to scoop her lungs full of the rich air that rested near the earth and moved towards, moved among the wet grasses there. With a tilt of her head, she dove beneath the icy water, pushing down, downward toward the river's bottom. She knew the course and her destination beyond the cave. The only question was whether or not her lungs would sustain her for the minutes without air. Smoothly, with unerring quickness, she moved into the colder, deeper-flowing current, adding her own broad strokes to its speed. She was under the hill now, into the cave. No sunlight here in the mid-depths. Darkness was complete. Still, she pushed forward with the stream. Steady glide. Pull and kick. Glide. Pull and kick. Glide. She no longer felt the water as cold, only as an env- only as an environment and as a swift suction carrying her forward. In one strong and wide stroke, her hand encountered a fish, just the brisk touch of a mutual greeting. There were other touches, too. She particularly welcomed the river dwellers bold enough to swim with and about her. Her lungs began to feel too full. She forced herself to hold the air another moment before slowly oozing out a tiny stream of breath into the water. Where would it bubble up, she wondered, if the river was all underground here? Now, she thought, now she could begin to push the air out faster. Surely the river was about to emerge again, and she could surface. But where was the light? She did not dare to glide upward while the water still ran underground. There might not, there might be no air when she came up. No air, only earth. She felt tiredness throughout now, and in one effort she both gathered and centered her strength. The only task was to reach the other side of the hill. The only task was forward. How long had she been under? Four minutes? Five? She increased the force of her strokes. Where was the light, the familiar opaqueness of the water that would tell her the stream had burst from the mountainside? She was pushing out the breath faster now. Only a few seconds left, and then she would be on supplemental air. There at the bottom of her breathing cycle... She could survive for more than a minute, perhaps longer, but she dared not risk letting all her air go until she could see the light. In a sudden decision, Alaka shifted to her lomph, to that deep part of her kinesthetic awareness that could take charge of her bodily movements in involuntary fashion. Her changeover was uncertain at first. She wondered briefly why she had always she was always reluctant to give away, to give over any control to her lomph. It was, after all, a genuine part of herself. Why did she feel Lanthing somehow to be an inauthentic way of being? She knew very well, for instance, that while she mistrusted her Lanth, she would never learn wind riding or even scudding. Pelagine would say, I'm biting off my nose to spite my face, she mused. All this passed in the moments of gradually growing confidence, as she was consigning her kicks and glides to other less familiar parts of herself. More trust for you in the future, Lanth, she pledged. Now as the Lanth moved her still steadily forward, her attention was freed for the full addressing of her plight. With only tacit awareness now in her swimming, she short-sighted to the companions who swam with her. A whole school responded as if one fish. You are in trouble? Yes, she sent back. I need air and light. Not far away, assured the fish. A few more of your strokes. Alaka almost exploded the remainder of her air in relief. Instead, she forced herself to release it slowly. Thank you, water ones. May you go well and come again. And again, and again, and again, sang the fish. The refrain seemed to echo forward and back in the surrounding water. There. Had she risen, or was the current really warmer? Warmer for sure, and yes, there was the light, the greenish-brown translucent spread out before her. She tilted her head toward the top of the water, fighting even now the urge to open her mouth and drink into her lungs all of the river's murkiness.
Her head broke through the smoothness of the river's surface. The small splash echoed over dark rocks and hanging vines. A lack of swept air into her body, pushed it out, swept it in again. She had made it. There in the distance was the outside, and in a twist of nature the, the water seemed bathed in the southwestward setting sun. The sun, she praised it silently, always bright, even if too rarely warm these days. The sun, having led her there, greeted her back on this side of the mountain. Back in her own conscious control now, after proper gratitude to her lanth, she flowed forward until she was sure she would be able to stand up on the shore. Silently she swam and then silently waited. A large tree root helped her out of the water. She did not shake the drops from her hair or her body. It might be too soon. Quietly she stood by the giant who had helped her out. Was it a cypress? Too big. A kind of willow, maybe. Its roots were almost completely undercut now by a swift bend in the river. Thank you, she said in mind stretched to the tree. Again, if you need me, responded the tree. Stay well, she chanted inside. Go well said the tree.
Time to explore. Even as Alaka began to warm herself, she stretched to listen. Stock still, standing with her back against the tree, she spanned her immediate territory. Rabbits, or some small animals just below the cold ground. Above, strangely quiescent starlings, or sparrows. Around her, fallen branches, deep moss, damp grass, red-brown mud, dormant brambles, layer on layer of thicket, the sun passing behind the far rise, the river moving slowly by and swirling faster beneath the giant tree, the far-off promise of a midnight frost. Quietly, she swung her stretch further to full circle at a distance beyond the rise. Less intense sounds and smells now, but more of them. By swift montage, she listened to and felt one at a time every thing, every oxygen-breathing thing, every other-breathing thing, every non-breathing thing. They felt her attention and told her all was well. She drew back full into her own body, into her hard self, and sent out a short automatic sweeping channel while she physically shook the water from her hair. I will warm you, she heard. Laughing, she turned to the tree. Gently, she laid herself against the heavy bark, spreading her legs and arms around the big trunk. I take when you give, said the tree. I know, she said, and I take when you give. She inhaled slowly, pressing her viscera against the tree. As she released her breath, the trunk pushed against her, slowly, with no visible motion, the two set a rhythm of Numa exchange. Alaka's trousers became dry and warm. So did her soft shirt, a chamois given her by Ula, her long-loved antelope, when Ula changed form. Her hair swung free and dry now. All her insides felt comfortable. My feet, she said to the tree. No boots? No, I swam. Can you torpor them? Will you help me? Alaka dropped her eyes to her feet, encasing her toes, her arches, her heels in heavy wooded soles. She held fast temporarily while the tree wrapped warm breeze around them. That should do. I have less than 12 kilometers to go. I thank you. Again, if you need me, I take you with me. And I keep you with me. Alaka smiled the tree a touch. The sun had disappeared now, and she tasted the coldness that her warm body was refusing to know. She, sw- she spread before her a wide mind stretch, allowing its field to reach to her left, as well as before her. Quietly still, she set out toward the rise where the sun had set.
Well, there you have it, sisters. Another hour of women's liberation music, thanks to Mary Watkins and the stories of the Hill Women in the Wanderground by Sally Miller Gearhart. And in her words, through her character's words, fully given and well taken from eternity for eternity, deep, 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 red waters, deep, and soon. Catch you in two weeks. Blessed be.